What you try and do is first at least get the data that's giving you the answer that you're asking right now. So you have all this data, right? And what, what makes it really usable? Well, obviously the accuracy. Can you find what you need and is it actually accurate? The timeliness of it, how easy is it to get at that data, right? And then how is it displayed to us? How is that information communicated? Now, I don't know about you, but it feels like everyone is making claims that they can make your data more actionable, increase efficiency, and unlock value from legacy equipment. But let's be honest, industrial operations produce a tsunami of data every single day, and this data can be really messy. Actually getting valuable insights out of your data is not an easy process, and it requires sophisticated organization and aggregation from multiple sources. So how do you actually get access to this data, and how do you make it consumable for decision making? In today's episode, we'll learn how to make sense of complex data from multiple sources and gain the full visibility to optimize your supply chain and the processes that support it. It's my pleasure to welcome our guests, Douglas Bellin and Anders Davidson. Anders is the digital systems product owner at 3M. As a business development and product innovation executive, Anders brings skills and experience in opportunity assessment, relationship management, and go-to-market strategies and partnerships. And we also have Doug Bellin from AWS. Doug is the business development leader for Industry 4.0. He leads global initiatives around Industry 4.0, Smart Factory, and Factory of the Future. He works with customers across various industries to bring and share best practices from leading companies. Um, today, we're going to be talking about data, how you pull insights from that data. Um, and we're going to be directly referencing the reInvent 2020 presentation that 3M did with Doug. Um, but we're going to be diving a little bit deeper into that and understanding, you know, exactly how you made the decisions that you did, um, how you solved the problem, and also just how complex it was. So to get started, Doug, can you just kind of explain for a non-technical person, what is a data lake and why does it matter? Yeah, I think one of the big, big problems that customers have is they hear the term data lake and they go, what, why, and how, right? And those are the issues that customers come to us and go, why do I need one first? And if you look across not just manufacturing, but probably any enterprise out there, it's years and years of legacy systems that come to play. It could be your ERP system, your CRM system, your warranty system, for all the other three-letter acronyms of those systems that sit out there. And, and the problem is they don't talk to each other. So now you've got an ERP system, an order system, and a customer relationship system, and they don't talk to each other. So the, the theory and the idea around a data lake is how do we pull the data off those disparate systems, put some magic in there that kind of helps you aggregate that data so you can make sense across those different systems. Because if you've ever worked in a, you know, a customer relationship product, sometimes you have customer name five different times. Right, you might have 3M, let's use as an example. You might have 3M, but you might have MMM, which is 3M. Well, guess what? If I do a query and try and find out my customer relationship, my warranty information from 3M, I'm gonna miss the MMM until I've done some data scrubbing and data intelligence across from that standpoint. So really the, the idea for that data lake is not to replace those legacy systems. And I use legacy being historic systems that are in place that were typically put in place for one particular reason, one division, one problem that you were having. 
Now, yes, ERP solves more than just that one problem, um, but it was a single little instance that was put in for these areas. So now that data lake takes that information and allows the users, instead of having to understand where all this information lives, Excel spreadsheets, uh, you know, system A, system B, system C, keep going down the list from that standpoint, they have one consistent area to go to be able to have that information at their hands, which now they can write their own reports. They don't have to go to the IT department and, and fill out a, a ticket and say, I need this report within two days because they probably have a backlog. It will never be done in two days. But let your business analyst get to that information and really drive it from there. Yeah, I love that you point out, let your analysts get there, not having to show them how to do it, that they can really build this self-service model, which I definitely want to dive into today. Um, you brought up some really good points, and mm -hmm. I just want to touch on to this um, reInvent video that we're going to be talking about today with Project Spider. Um, you know, I've been in the manufacturing industry for a couple years now, um, nothing crazy extensive, but, you know, I thought I understood how complicated data problems were to solve until I watched this presentation, um, which is incredible. Everybody should go watch this. Um, but I had no idea how many different sources of data come together mm -hmm. and how complicated it is to clean it up. So, Anders, can you just yep. give us, you know, what were your thoughts on this whole project? And I'm also curious why it's called Spider. Right. Um, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, 3M is a, con is a company that is over 100 years old, right, 110. And, you know, while our data doesn't necessarily reach back 110 years, you know, this is a company that's been, you know, frankly, pulling data for, for many years, for at least a few decades. Um, and you put those data collection uh, process in place, you're not going to update them every year. I mean, so a newly started company that's native to the cloud and some new startup, I mean, they can start with the latest and greatest that was maybe just created six months ago. We're talking about systems that were created six, 10, 15 years ago. Um, you also have a company that is very distributed across the globe. Um, significant amount of our sales and operations come in from outside the US, Southeast Asia, Latin America, you know, Western, Eastern Europe, all over the place. And when you think about when they, when they started collecting data in a really meaningful way, uh, still, you know, several years ago, um, you know, as a company and as a, and just the, the, the technology platforms weren't necessarily there to have one uniform system that was doing this globally um, in the same way at the same time. So you have, uh, frankly, a lot of different systems trying to gather what they, I think they had designed to be similar data and that didn't. So we're kind of dealing with a lot of legacy. A lot of that then was being put into a Teradata database. Um, and so that's like the background about I think 3M and how, frankly, a lot of uh, industrial and manufacturing companies have worked historically. Then uh, there is this particular interest, again, a company like 3M, global, you know, hundreds, thousands of SKUs, you know, dozens of different markets we play in, but a supply chain and a lot of technologies that uh, uh, get get used in these different markets. So you think about 3M as being so famous for our adhesives, right? Um, well, we use sticky stuff in medical devices, medical products, and we use sticky stuff. Tape on my desk, yeah. Yeah, we, we use stuff. Yeah, we use sticky stuff. All I mean, we use sticky stuff in all kinds of places, right? So whether it be 
on your post-it notes, your scotch tape, or in your tegaderm dressing, or in your over in industrial, or in uh, in your highway signage, right? Or reflective materials and all these kinds of places too. So they're not going to have a, a supply chain. You know, each of these divisions isn't going to have end-to-end their own supply chain. You're going to try to leverage the manufacturing technology across this. And I'm not sure you asked the question about the name Spider. We actually, when, when, we were, uh, when we were put on this project, the word Spider was already assigned to it. So I'm not sure if, if this is what they were thinking of, but quite frankly, the way you think about Spider is that this is quite a spider web of that's exactly chain. what I was thinking. Right. I was like, I hope that that's why they named it. Because as soon as I finished the video, I was yeah. like, it reminds me of a web. <laughs> yeah. So what's interesting about it is you think about a company like 3M and we, you know, how many raw materials come in, um, you know, just raw chemicals and raw other kinds of materials and semi-finished goods. And a raw material might come into a plant and, I don't know, let's just say North Carolina or something, it gets converted into some semi-finished goods which then gets sent on to plants all over the country, all over the continent, all over the world to be used. And this is that complexity of that, that supply chain. And, and then, anyway, so, so that's the complexity of the supply chain. And then what 3M really needed as we kind of make progress as a company and to become even more global and less, less siloed by our subsidiaries less siloed by the countries we operate in, you know, for a lot of reasons, we really needed to get much better, more timely uh, uh, visibility into the flow of these raw materials through our supply chain. So we could understand better how we could leverage economies of scale, how we can better address, you know, single sort situations where maybe we have one source of supply for a given raw material or semi-finished good. The problem was, is that all this data existed, as you can imagine, as Doug was referring to earlier. I mean, but it's sitting in this Teradata database, right? And is is it accessible? Yeah, by a data engineer. And so when the the internal customer, the business executive, asks the question, where can you show me um, where we're using raw material XYZ and how it flows through our supply chain? That could be done, but it would require um, a lot of queries, some reports, time, um, the type, the uh, let's the accuracy, but the the uh, when was that data updated? It might, it might be old data. Quite frankly, it might be several months old. What's the impact of that raw material on our sales? So much, how much of that, uh, how much of the dollar sales of our healthcare business? is reliant on a given raw material. So all very important questions, right? But again, the the mechanism for getting at that data was, well, first of all, very cumbersome, it was slow, but then even the representation of that data was um, just, um, I, I want to use the word inadequate. Um, it was just not, it wasn't consumable. They didn't have a lot of confidence in it. <laughs> I uh, know I would say the confidence was 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 good. I mean, the queries that were created by this other team, I think were were pretty good. The problem was that so you say, hey, where is this where's XYZ raw material? And you look and they basically deliver you a spreadsheet. And for someone who really 
understood that, that it would it's like looking at some sort of a crazy piece of art where someone could kind of take their finger you know, down 87 rows and over 23 columns and say, look at that number there, or look at that cell. That's where you can see that it's at a Brookings plant. And it's like, that, that's just not consumable, right? It's not user-friendly. And so that's the part of the data. So you think about the data. So you have all this data, right? And But what makes it really usable? Well, obviously the accuracy. Can you find what you need? And is it actually accurate? The timeliness of it. How easy is it to get at that data, right? And then how is it displayed to us? How is that information communicated? What we did is we said, okay, how can we make this more actionable, easier to use, easier to track down this data, and yeah, more actionable? Um, and that's where what we did is we took, we exported that data out of our Teradata database into a big S3 bucket, right? And, and that's where then our data engineers and data scientists and our developers went to work um, to, we basically brought it in, uh, then we put it into an e, a, a Amazon EMR mm -hmm. and ran the Spark jobs on it. And then put that to, into the Neptune database, which is a, a graph database, which was a great find by one of our um, data engineers. Um, it really was game changer for how we dealt with the data. Um, so if we were looking at a traditional relational database, it was, again, remember, I'm not a data engineer, okay? So let's be clear about this. So I'll try to describe this from a, a business person's perspective. So as we were working through this, this, this project, the relational database, and Doug, you can correct me if this isn't the right way of kind of framing this up, but my understanding from the way that, and so let me just step back and say one thing. I was trying to get a conversation with my data engineer about this to ask him just to refresh my memory about the that part of it. Um, but we weren't able to connect before this call. So we can always follow back and I can provide you a better explanation um, if this isn't good enough. But essentially that relational database, great tool for a lot of purposes. But it seemed like our data engineer identified that the Neptune, the graph database, was really uniquely qualified for the problem we were trying to solve, which is what is the connection between all these independent nodes um, that is our kind of our supply chain and the raw materials and the semi-finished goods. So we didn't need to look at it kind of at the data in the way that a relational database allows, but just that it, 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 it presents the data in a way that you see the relationship of each node to the other. And that was kind of the key piece um, for our work. And it was also great because my understanding is that it was the key to then how our front end developer was able to then display that data in that very graphical look that you see in the um, spider demonstration um, from the reInvent talk. Doug, is that a pretty good explanation? Yeah, and I, I think one of the interesting things that's happened in the past few years in technology is, you know, it, in the 90s, it was all around data warehousing and RDBMS, relational database systems from that standpoint, which did do, here's your predefined, how these data points get related from there. But what we're seeing is data now has different questions that are being asked for. So you're looking at correlation 
of those data points. And you're looking at thousands of data points, which may have different correlations depending on how they're going with that, which you may not find in a relational data set. So here's a great way to you know, help, help that data set have different cues and different queries built into it, but the, still the same core data is living on your S3 bucket, right? Your data, your data lake standard standpoint where the data is first stored. And now what we're able to do is very quickly allow you to move, not really move, but copy that data from the data storage into where the data questions and insights start to come from by using these new purpose-built like a graph database or time series database or other things that are really starting to come to the market as we go forward. Maybe have an I, example I, of that. Like, a, you know, when you say copy that data, like what kind of data would you want to copy and why would that be helpful? Let's think of an Excel spreadsheet. So you've got an Excel spreadsheet and instead of putting it, you know, extracting it out and putting it into a relational database, what you're doing is you're basically taking that file, putting it into that storage area, and now it's it's looked at just as a, a file. Now what you can say is, okay, from this file, I need to use these fields and move it into, now it can be part of a relational database or it can be part of a graph database or other areas from that standpoint to, to enable the values of that data, again, with the correlation that does occur, um, which may not have been thought about from, a, from the, the traditional relational database. So it's, it's really interesting to be able to use, again, you're not completely building new data sets, but you're using those data sets that exist, but now asking new questions of them because you're able to ask those questions. Gotcha. And Anders, I'm curious then, you know, when I think about data and manufacturing and in industrial companies, honestly, like the first thing that comes to my mind mm. is that it's so overwhelming and there's so much of it. And I'm just like wondering how in the world do you figure out what data you need and how do you sort through and figure out what data you don't need? Well, you actually start with what's available because <laughs> um, that's, that's, I would say, one of the first things we have to look at. And fortunately, one of the things that... Um, 3M has been doing at a manufacturing plants for quite a while is what they call production reporting. Um, and so they kind of track what's used and what quantities um, on a per run basis. So they know how much of XYZ product is or raw materials used and that, what the output is. So we had a lot of that data already captured. Again, fantastic. I mean, you know, probably on systems that were designed 20 years ago. Okay, um, but at least it existed and it was sitting there in Teradata. And so we were able to then to grab that and, and use it for our purposes, so. Well, Doug, I can ask you real quick then, like how do you know then if you're not, if you're missing something important, you know? Um, he said based on the data that's available, but I guess with all these leg legacy systems, I would be nervous that, you know, I'm pulling the data, but what if I'm missing this key metric that just, you know, makes everything else just totally warped? Like, how do you know that you're pulling the right data? You, and, and that's part of the, the overall magic that starts to happen is, again, what you try and do is first at least get the data that's giving you the answer that you're asking right now. Mm. And sometimes let, let's take uh, time series data. You know, in, in many times, time series is how do I look at data that's being created over a certain time frame? Maybe it's by the minute, and but we might have that data by the second. 
but we don't need the data by the second because that's just going to make our data sets too big. We can't push that over the network, all the fun things from there. But there might be a time frame. Let's think about maintenance. You know, when did that machine go down? Why did it go down? And the, the, the aggregate of the minute is not detailed enough for us to be able to understand what happened in that minute to minute time frame. So then what you may need to do is augment or now if you know that that data does exist, again, you move the data that you want to be able to get those quick questions, quick answers done very quickly. You know that that data might still be sitting somewhere, that second level or millisecond type of reading. And now what you do is you go back and augment the data set that already exists with that millisecond reading which there's the relationship that you can go from millisecond from second to minute to millisecond and all the relationships up and down that food chain from there because then you then you can get that detail to say oh this happened within that minute time frame and that's where you start to say and that was a precursor to the issue that we saw from there so the power of the data lake is uh, again that it can expand and contract depending on the volumes and the data that you might need as you start to go forward. There are some times that you're collecting a data set, but you never use it. Mm -hmm. So you can actually look at that you know, data blob or the data sitting there in that S3 bucket or in that data storage component and say, I've never questioned this data or I've never copied it into something that we use from there. So why are we even moving it across? Let's just stop it and stop moving it across so you can actually... Uh, run an automated report that gives you what's being queried, what's not being queried, which again is going to help you from building swampy areas. Everybody talks about a data lake moving into a data swamp, which means it's not being used, right? That's really what a data swamp is. Your data just gets stagnant. Um, and, and that's the worst thing that can happen from that standpoint, because if, the, if your customer and think of your internal customer being that business analyst isn't using the data, let's not move it. But if they're, if they're asking that question and trying to get to that information, it's going to be relevant as they start to go forward. Anders, did you find yep. this challenge as well? Did you find that you had to be very specific and ask certain questions to use the data to get answers? Or did you look more broadly? Um, no, we were pretty targeted. We were fortunate in that. It's an interesting question because we were fortunate in that there was a team ahead of us that have been doing some of the queries into the Teradata database, okay, to create these basically spreadsheets. It wasn't basically spreadsheets, they were spreadsheets that were the reports. So we were able to leverage the work that they had done in deciphering the data and the data um, in the Teradata database. But we still actually needed a little bit of their help, but what I call it the decoder ring of, okay, what are all these you know, fields and tables and what do these mean? Because then sometimes we would, you know, build it, we run, run the reports, and we realize that there's data missing. So we actually, it was interesting, we actually had a little bit of the, the reverse in that we, we started, you know, pulling data in. And then as we kind of got into the project and started kind of building some early versions of it, we realized that um, we didn't have all the data we needed. So then we went back and pulled in more. Um, so kind of, the, yeah, we actually were able to avoid that swamp issue that Doug just mentioned because we, we were a little, we were trimming it as we came in. Now I'd say this too, that's interesting is that the way we approached the project is the very first thing that I wanted the team to do was to be able to create the same spreadsheet 
that the previous team had created, if that makes any sense. So even though the spreadsheet wasn't our you know, long-term desired outcome, my approach to it was that if we could at least recreate that those spreadsheets, then we knew that we had the right set of data. And we knew that the queries were working appropriately. So that was like our, our we call it our roller skate. So we, I think Josh explains this in our, in our, uh, in our, in the reinvent top, you roller skate, skateboard, scooter, bike, car, whatever. And that was like the first step was, first step is let's, rec- let's, let's using this AWS set of services, right? Uh, so we pulling everything into AWS, S3, EMR, some using some Lambda functions. Let's, let's recreate that spreadsheet as a first step. And then we knew that we had the right data and the right queries. And then we can move on and do things. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because in the a previous podcast interview, our guest was talking about the importance of starting with like small incremental steps and having yep. very like mission based projects. Do you think that that applies to the majority of like industrial manufacturing companies or is that just specific to your company? Um, I would say I'm not sure what company you're referring to. So but nevertheless, I would say um it's it's sort my impression. I'm relatively new to the Scrum Agile approach, but I think that's sort of being a Scrum Agile approach, right? Um, you know, Caroline, you were talking about my my previous uh, career or my earlier in my career did some mobile development, and one thing I thought was really interesting that I was that was kind of developing at the same time that I was had that company was the Delta Airlines had a mobile app, right, and. So if you were to compare the Delta Delta Airlines mobile app from 10 years ago to what it is now, they took a very incremental approach. Like it was originally like you could see flight times and you could take a picture of where your car was at the airport. I mean, it was really trimmed down, right? And they added functionality over time, which is the right, you know, the right approach. I think that's just you got to baby steps. And the other thing I always think about when I run projects is because I'm in um, – at 3M, I'm part of what's called the Corporate Research Systems Lab. Um, so we're part of corporate R&D. And you know, we basically get our projects get prioritized from our chief technology officer, uh, a guy named John Banovitz. And you, know, you never know what's going to come up, right? And so I always think about projects in terms of if we were to get pulled off this project tomorrow or next week to be put on something as a higher priority, have we at least delivered something of value? that they can take, that our customer can take on, right? Maybe it's not what we all had hoped for in the long run, but at least we've delivered, you know, something that they can be uh, delivered to them and, and they can benefit from. Yeah, and I think if you think about that, if you take that step back and, you know, how Josh talked about from the skateboard to the to the bike to the car, run, walk, crawl, walk, run, whichever process yep. agile that you use from that standpoint, if you can't do what they're currently used to. So I think putting that target of this is the minimally viable product, which is an Excel spreadsheet, which is 3000 lines long and 75 columns wide and is impossible to navigate. Then the second step is how do we make it easier to use, to navigate, to find those insights and drive that capacity? I think that's what really helps that customer. And then what happens is you start to say, okay, you, you interview the customer, that internal advocacy program that you have and say, what would you like to do next? And that's where part of it is, you know what? I would love to be able to now double click and say, 
where, you know, think about the production information and I'm looking at site A product coming from site Q going to site F for final finishing. Well, can I map all the way across that? Yes or no. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, and can I then also correlate, hey, you know what, I saw a problem six months later when it was shipped to the customer and we were able to find it batch to the back to the batch level. And now you start really getting into deep questions that were very difficult to probably answer. And again, those hundreds of different disparate systems and databases mm-hmm. and everything from that standpoint, which is the business driver. Thank you for tuning in to Industrial Insights. If you want to learn more about this topic, head over to the blog for today's episode to download featured resources. You can find today's blog in the episode description and also on our website at aws.amazon.com slash industrial slash podcast.